Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Peter Prizio, CEO of SnapAttack, a threat management platform that's raised $8 million in funding. Peter, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brett. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there at SnapAttack, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. Yeah. So I cut my teeth early on as an electrical engineer, and I spent a quick stint as federal employee in the patent office and then uh, dove into building uh, weapon systems for Department of Defense, ended up moving into more of like a traditional federal consulting, management consulting, strategy consulting. That's really where I started to get exposure into the cybersecurity space. And then from there, I jumped into startups. So being an engineer, I'd always loved to figure out how things worked and wanted to throw my hat in the ring to see if we could build something. So spent some time in the third-party risk space, in the threat intelligence space, and now here at SnapTech. And did you have any idea when you were younger that you would end up in cybersecurity? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> I think I actually wanted to be a chemist, which is maybe atypical from like the proverbial like fireman, police officer, or something of those lines. But uh, as far as I can remember, I always wanted to be a scientist of some sort. And then what was it about cybersecurity that pulled you in and caught your attention? You know, really the problem space. Cybersecurity was so broad. And there's a multitude of things that's ever changing. The adversaries are ever changing and evolving and getting smarter. And uh, so the problem space just constantly evolves, which makes us who are trying to solve those problems constantly have work to do. And we have to constantly evolve along with it. So it's sort of like lifelong learning. The job security is fantastic, but that's really besides the point. I'm really trying to you know, ultimately stop the bad guys. Nice. I love it. Now, a couple of questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is, what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Probably, probably Brian Chesky out of uh, Airbnb. I happened to catch a podcast that I listened to that was dedicated to a couple episodes on him. And the journey that Airbnb had to go through was just quite phenomenal. I mean, everything from legislation to people, you know, there was ransack gate, there was all sorts of problems that they had to and they kept persevering and driving through to what they are today. And even the the COVID thing really impacted them until they figured out a way to get through it. So really just kind of admire his persistence and perseverance through that. And uh, when you think about it, like, I don't know, when they started the concept of just renting a room in somebody's house and staying there was very foreign, right? Like, so even just being able to go out on a limb and, you know, set to leave a dent on the universe in that way is pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's fascinating when you take a look at Brian and compare him with Travis Kalanick at Uber. You know, they started around the same time, both very disruptive, both you know, essentially had to go to war with regulators to get it pushed through. And I think Brian navigated that very well and ended up on the other side being perceived in a very positive way. Whereas Travis Kalanick, yeah, he also made it through, but didn't end up in the, the most positive light, at least from a media perspective. I think he uh, made a lot of enemies along his journey, but Brian seems to not have, which I just find fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. I think it's, it's definitely, you know, how you approach those battles. 
Yeah, Brian's one of the the top founders that we hear on the show, apart from you know, like the obvious ones like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. But they might have to start banning people saying Brian until they fix <laughs> these ridiculous Airbnb fees. Yeah. I don't know if you've experienced that when you go to checkout, but 30% more oh, of the cost somehow. It's, re- it's insane. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, those fees, it feels like, you know, the constant adding, even the, the door dashes, you know, it's like, just stack them up. Yep. <laughs> uh, what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? And this can be one of the, you know, classic business books. But what we really like to hear are the, the books that influenced how you view the world and how you think about the world and, and your mindset and, and all that type of stuff. Interesting. Obviously, a ton of books, right? I could rattle off a million of the ones that I refer to all the time, things like, you know, proverbial hard things about hard things, etc. I think, you know, from a product person, because I did grow up in product management in the startup world, the book Inspired by Kagan, it's how to create tech product consumers love. That one is really strong in terms of measuring products from outcome versus outputs. And a real like holistic view of the product, not just features and functions, but the entire customer journey and how you structure building something that people are actually going to love. That one was really impactful along, along my process and my journey through learning how to become a better product manager. I would also say, I'll add a second one in there too. The Little Red Book of Wisdom by Mark DeMoss. It was a book that was given to me by one of my old bosses. And it's just a very kind of uh, short passages about things that the author had kind of picked up along their life. And there's some of the things that I still use today, like writing a letter, actually physically writing a letter and sending it to somebody goes so far. I use it every day. You know, if we hire a new employee, I send them a welcome letter that I write personally and, you know, come up with something that really is just personalized and a personal message to that individual definitely goes a long way. I'm going to be checking my mail every day next week just to wait for my letter after this podcast. (laughs) All right, I'll make a note. (laughs) Now let's talk about Snap Attack. So I know you were a a spin-out, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We came from Booz Allen Hamilton and we were developed in their dark labs, which is a bit like their research and development arm for Department of Defense and Intelligence uh, community customers. And uh, essentially, you know, Snap Attack was conceived as a way to help threat hunters hunt more efficiently. And what they tried to do was say, hey, if we can get the best offensive hackers in the world and bring them into a product development environment and charter them with, hey, if you were to figure out a way to defend against yourself, but using a software tool, what would it look like? And that was really the beginnings of what Snap Attack started to shape into. Also, the, a nod to our name, Snap Attack, is really a snapshot of an attack. So the whole idea was, can we capture what an attacker is doing and rip out all of that telemetry and metadata and the, the information that would propagate itself on the victim network and hand that over to the defender so that the defender could better arm themselves to detect, hunt, and respond to that. It's such a great name, too. Snap Attack is very fun to say. I feel like with enterprise software, it's very hard to have a name that's fun to say. Did you come up with that name? I personally didn't, but our chief product officer and chief technology officer, Tim and Fred, the impetus of Snap Attack. Nice. We have a lot of fun with it. You know, when we do snack attacks at some conferences and things along those lines, we're going to have a spice attack, I think, at, <laughs> at RSA. Nice. I love it. 
Now, talk to us about what life is like for a threat hunter today or someone doing threat hunting. What does it look like as they're navigating this world and using these legacy systems, you know, the, the companies that are not using Snap Attack yet? It's very organic. There's a lot of dovetailing into threat intelligence, identifying what the behaviors of a particular attack might look like, what tools and techniques could be employed by a particular adversary, having to do a lot of that research. And then from that research, they have to go ahead and do their actual hunting so that they'll have to log into their SIM platform and search for the indicators of compromise, the file hashes, and the known IP addresses that are associated with those tools. They might be more sophisticated and look for the behaviors of the attack, which are really like patterns of activity. It could be something like look for users who are elevating privileges and running particular commands on the command line that's you know not typical of that particular type of user. And from there, they have to then sift through all the results that they get back, identify if there's anything anomalous, and you know kind of keep drilling down and repeating that process until they either found what they were looking for and proving their hypothesis or not finding what they were looking for which doesn't necessarily mean there's no badness in what they were looking for. It just means that they didn't find it in what they were looking for. So it's very manual. It's very mature from a experience perspective. And hunters are kind of, you know, few and far between to find the talent and the, uh, the resources that you would need to stand up an effective threat hunt program. And looking through your website, I see you have listed there before snap attack, one to two weeks after 87% faster, before 12 hours, after one hour. That's super impressive. And I'm, I'm sure that's super meaningful to cybersecurity teams today. So it seems like a no brainer. So what do you think holds companies back from buying snap attack and using snap attack? Uh, that's a great question. You know, right now, we're a tool that is focused in on more mature customers. We're targeting enterprise customers, government customers. Our customers who use us have teams established. They have threat hunters, they have detection engineers, red teamers, blue teamers, fill in the blank. But usually they're a little bit higher on the cybersecurity maturity lane when we're looking across how well people are doing at security. A big focus for what we're doing right now in terms of product development is how do we lower the barrier to entry and bring these very mature capabilities to, I'll say the masses, but the masses being those companies that operate their own security tools and their own security stack. And as you make that shift, would that be a move to a more PLG focus for the product or what would that look like? Uh, we're definitely going to offer different entry points for our product, our product is very wide in terms of capabilities. So when you look at cybersecurity, traditionally, most people think of, you know, where it lands on the, the spectrum of prepare, prevent, detect, respond and recover. And Snap Attack really spreads across prepare, prevent and detect. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of capabilities that allow us to help users understand what their threats are, understand the details of those threats looking at how well their current preparedness to detect or prevent those particular threats are and how well their controls are performing, and then moving into deploying new detection controls and hunting for badness in those gaps. 
and rerunning all of that so that you can then verify that your new controls are functioning the way that you intend and are effective. So there's a lot of capability there. And so we're moving into the process of, A, can we establish a unified workflow across all of them so that we can walk a user who may not be as sophisticated all the way through from start to finish, and then also slice those up into different segments so we can service customers who you know might not be interested in one of those particular areas, but is interested in, say, accessing our detection library for enhancing their detections in their sim and not taking advantage of the other pieces. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And can you talk to us about traction and adoption and any metrics that you're okay with sharing that just demonstrate some of that growth you're seeing? Yes. So, you know, in terms of metrics, we have essentially grown by about 6x in our first year. And um, we're essentially hoping to double what our growth was going forward into this year. Our adoption has been fantastic from my perspective. Like I mentioned earlier, we do split our time between government customers and we have some of the most sophisticated government customers around. Unfortunately, I can't really talk about which ones, but um, they do span the gamut from defense to civilian and then also enterprise customers and MSSP customers. So we've got a pretty wide user base and a pretty wide exposure base from a customer profile. And a lot of the founders listening in, and I think just a lot of tech companies in general are interested in selling to the government or becoming more open to that idea. It seems like in Silicon Valley, that's becoming more widely accepted, whereas a few years ago, it was kind of looked down upon. So what do you think are the pros of selling to the government? And then what do you think are some of the cons that come from selling to the government? So pros of selling to the government, some of them are a bit obvious in the sense that you have a very sophisticated user and a buyer who has budget that's not necessarily tied to some type of profit measure from a business perspective. So you wind up getting customers who have a lot of experience. Oftentimes they come through maybe uh, military training, so which is really helpful for us. We get some high experienced intelligence officers and things like that. We get some really good feedback and really good just process and rigor that we can then drive back into product enhancements. The challenge of doing business with the government is the challenge of doing business with the government. The sales cycles are are longer and oftentimes they require a deal shaping or some sort of dedicated effort that's different motion from your typical enterprise sales motion. So it's a bit harder to break into it, but then once you're into it, you now have essentially a referenceable customer that you can use in the government to sell to other government agencies. And I would also say that a lot of government agencies, although they are all different, they oftentimes share use cases that are similar. And they're a bit divergent from enterprise, sometimes just in the way that the government agencies are federated. So you might have a department level and there are sub agencies underneath them. However, so I guess in that sense, they're a bit more like a uh, a conglomerate style enterprise that has multiple business units, but they oftentimes share use cases across them. So if you can solve a problem for one of them, most likely you can solve that same problem for others and expand your exposure there. Yeah, we had a guest on the other day who sells defense tech and he described it as, you know, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Same thing, if you can sell to the government, you know, you can sell to anyone. So he said that's the like ultimate 
first customer because if you can prove that it works and you learn to service government customers, then it's going to be pretty easy to go into enterprise or mid-market and service those customers because the demands and the needs seem to be a bit lower when they go to the commercial side. Yeah, that's probably true. I will say, though, there are sometimes unique asks that come through the government that the commercial side doesn't need. So then you have to make a strategic decision whether or not you're going to invest the product engineering to fulfill those asks or if we're going to choose not to. Makes sense. Now let's talk about market categories. And I know in the pre-interview, we were discussing this of, you know, what do we want to call Snap Attack here when I do the intro? I had said threat management platform, but I know you had some other options that you're considering. So can you just talk to us about your general views when it comes to your market category? Yes. So obviously cybersecurity and in the threat space, as I mentioned, with the prepare, prevent, detect, we are all left of attack. So before the attack happens, which puts us squarely in the proactive cybersecurity space. And within each one of those prepare, prevent, detects, those are I'll loosely say verticals in the cyberspace to delineate different types of tooling. And because we sort of span across those, it's almost better to talk about Snap Attack as the capabilities that we offer. So we have a threat intelligence, we have a controls validation module, we have detection as code that you can deploy into your SIMs and EDRs, and we have a hunt platform that allows you to hunt across your environment. So it's very much focused in on horizontally integrating across those proactive cyber verticals and enabling what we refer to as purple teaming, which is really the offensive cybersecurity informing defensive activity in the cyber world. So you can strengthen the posture about knowing how the, the adversaries act and how the bad guys work. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Super interesting. Now, what do you think you've gotten right when it comes to breaking through the noise? The growth that you're seeing is super impressive there. And in cybersecurity, there's just so much noise. I think you and I had exchanged emails. We were both at Black Hat. And just walking around Black Hat last year, it just seemed like everyone was trying to say essentially the same thing, or everyone had a a very similar message. So how have you approached breaking through the noise? and, And what are you doing to really rise above all that noise that exists in this space? You know, from our perspective, we want to deliver the best product out there in this space. And we opted to go into this, you know, sort of proactive cyberspace. One, because that is a little bit less noisy from a vendor space. You know, things in the detect, respond and recover are all over the place. Everybody's better detection, better automated response, etc. So we opted to, you know, play further left along that chain. In terms of how we rise above the noise, I think we have a fairly unique brand. You had mentioned, you know, Snap Attack is an interesting name. It's kind of fun and elicits a little bit of, you know, hey, there's something different here. And so we wanted to, you know, kind of maintain that difference and just drive into into the market from that perspective. The other thing that we've been doing too is we put out content in the form of essentially educational videos. And they're not marketing. We do use the platform in the background of the videos, but the intention is really to disseminate information about a new and notable threat or an evergreen threat that's getting, you know, some publicity for whatever reason, maybe it resurfaced and really dive into, you know, what does that threat look like? What are the behaviors and the patterns that that threat might employ to, you know, exploit your network? 
And then how could you detect or hunt against it? And, you know, we put those out on, on a weekly basis and just drive into the market that way. We feel that if we give away information in the form of education, and if people like it, they're going to like our product. And where did you learn to do that? So that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, certainly resonates with everything that I believe about marketing. But what I've found is a lot of founders and marketing teams are impatient because what you just described, you know, taking the education approach, that's really playing the long game. And I think a lot of startups, you have a hard time playing the long game. So how did you discipline yourself and discipline Snap Attack to you know, play the long game and, and think that way about education? I will say, you know, it started as a bit of an experiment. So we started putting them out there. We thought it was really interesting. The first one might have actually been the Log4j vulnerability that popped up last year. I'd have to go back and look, but it was it was around that time. And there was so much noise in the news, on the Twitter, et cetera, that we were able to use our platform. Our platform is very visual. The best way to think about it is when you take that snapshot of that attack, you could replay it as a YouTube video in the platform. So our whole reason for existing in the platform is to let defenders understand what attacks are all about. And so we could take that one step further and make some educational recordings using our experts and put them out on YouTube. It just seemed like a natural thing for us to do to be able to get the brass tacks, you know, hey, this is what this vulnerability is all about. Here's how you can test if you're affected by it. And here's what you can do to, you know, enhance your defenses while waiting for a patch. And we put that out there and it got a lot of play. So it's just sort of like the thing that we should keep doing, right? It was the signal for us. And so we started putting them out on a weekly basis. And it's been fantastic, right? It's been steadily growing. We're getting subscribers and viewers. And I would say, you know, average view time is incredible <laughs> in terms of, you know, people actually sitting down and watching five to 10 minute videos on something around a cybersecurity threat. So it's, it's been really well received. So we just keep doing it. And I see you use the term a lot, proactive threat hunting. Are there others that are really using that? Or is that a term that you're really trying to own and a, a mindset and discipline that you're really trying to push? So, you know, threat hunting in of itself is technically a proactive exercise. It's really all about finding, you know, some people say it's finding the unknown threats. So it's really about looking for things that have bypassed your frontline defenses and are just hanging out in your network. So you want to a lot of times it's really about, you know, doing searches historically across all of your log data and your network data to see if there's anything anomalous that you might be able to pick up. So it's always been, I'd say, a proactive exercise, but not a lot of people necessarily advertise proactive threat hunting because I think threat hunting has largely or historically been more of like a services offering that a consultancy would deliver to a client rather than a platform or a product. So, you know, we're focusing in on proactive cyber and bringing together the different types of proactive cybersecurity capabilities into a platform really to drive better outcomes. And what I mean by that is better detection outcomes, lower false positives, higher confidence detections in your SOC, and better hunts in the form of, you know, confident queries that don't have human error baked into any of those query strings and things like that. So it's all about driving to that confidence in your security and in the controls and the protections that you have in place. Mm -hmm. So when you do get an alert, 
you can, you know, effectively respond to it because you know that that alert is probably real. Makes a lot of sense. Now, let's talk about challenges. So I'm sure along your journey so far, you've had a few challenges. Can we pick out one challenge that you experienced and overcame and just dive deeper into it? Yeah, I would group a majority of the challenges that we have because we are more of a broad platform, but we're a startup. So we're building as we're delivering, right? It's choosing to do the right things and not choosing to do other things when it comes to investing in where we're building the product and what we're building out. Because obviously we would love to build everything, but if we were to tackle everything all at the same time, most likely, you know, we'd have something mediocre at the end of it. So, you know, really focusing in on what are the right things and how do we dial into what people are going to value most and how are we going to impact the most number of organizations and their problems. That's ultimately what we've been doing. So, you know, in terms of overcoming those those challenges and how we're just diving into it, I've already mentioned a little bit around, you know, how we're we're lowering the barrier to entry from a user experience perspective and a workflow perspective in the platform. And that's really, you know, direct feedback basically from customers, from prospects, from other types of information and feedback loops that we're getting. And, you know, how do we serve all of these organizations that want to do this type of activity, but maybe don't have the teams, don't have the resources, don't have the expertise, you know, maybe have historically relied on outsourcing and want to start to insource, you know, so how do we help them? How do we help these customers and these prospects do this kind of activity and overall just get better, get better at security, get better at managing their teams and better in terms of their detection outcomes, their SOC outcomes. Ultimately, you know, really what that comes down to is that means better lives for the people who are who are sitting in the SOC having to triage all these alerts and respond to the incidents. So if we can make that better across the board, that's what we're trying to do. And let's zoom out into the future. So let's say three or five years from today, what's that vision for Snap Attack and, and everything that you're trying to achieve? Great question. Obviously, we want to grow. We want to grow across the board. We want to grow top line. We want to grow our team. But really, we want to get to a point where proactive cyber is as ubiquitous as reactive cyber. So can we start to shape the market where people are investing more heavily in preparing for threats rather than responding to threats? Responding is, in my opinion, a bit of a defeatist type of an attitude where you're expecting to have to effectively perform damage control after the fact and respond as quickly as you can. And if we invest more heavily on the front end, can we prevent those incidents from ever happening? And so from a snap attack perspective, you know, our vision is to play a very big part in that and impact as many organizations as we possibly can from the you know, most advanced you know, three-letter agency type organizations to MSSPs everywhere to enterprises everywhere and really help them shape what their proactive cyber programs would look like. Amazing. I love it. Peter, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. I'd love to keep you on and ask you another 10 or 20 questions, but do have to wrap, unfortunately. So before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? They can hit us up on our website, www.snapattack.com. We're also very active on LinkedIn and Twitter. 
Amazing. Peter, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story and talking about everything that you're building. This has been a super fun conversation and hope to have you back on in a couple of years to talk about all the traction and success that you've had. Great. Thanks, Brett. I appreciate it. All right. Keep in touch. 